baptisms. Uh, we have been uh, together, we've been uh, traveling through the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going a little uh, deeper into that, that hike through the book of Ephesians today. We're going to be cracking chapter 3 and uh, winding our way through uh, chapter 1 and 2. We found that, that uh, uh, Paul is reminding the followers of Jesus that, that make up the church in Ephesus of the journey each of them had been on and the outcome of that journey. He's reminding each of them about their experience. And we know that that, that reminder comes from his own experience, his own journey. He's talking about that as well. That journey is from death to life. And life manifests in the unity as people become aware of their place in the body of Christ, the church. Death is the common starting place for us all. This is something that we all share in common. Death is the starting place for us all. Death being separation from God, demonstrated by loyalty to things that are not God. Most often, this loyalty is to self in some way, shape, or form. But because of the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, we are able to realize the place of children, adopted children, full heirs to the king, full children of God. The life that this brings is not a life that can be earned. It's a life given through the sacrifice of Jesus. As loyalty to Jesus grows, we see our true identity formed. Not the lies that are given to us about our identity that say that we are what we've done or that maybe we are what we have or we are what others say about us. We find our identity in Christ and the Lord, God Almighty, calling us his original masterpiece. So from this, from this journey, a collection of masterpieces comes together in love of God, knowledge of self, and love for others. And together, this collection of masterpieces become the activity of the living God. With Jesus as the head, the body of Christ forms to see the plan of God unfold in his creation. And all of that brings us to the passage that we have today, beginning uh, in Ephesians chapter 3. So would you join me there? When I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, for the benefit of you Gentiles. We're going to get a verse deep today before we uh, get the rest of it, but this, this bears... A stop, because what Paul does here is he starts a thought, and then he's going to enter into this giant parenthetical statement that'll take us through the rest of the passage that we have today. But but the way that he starts is important. When he says, "When I think about all of this, the all of this that he's thinking about is exactly what we just talked about. It's the journey that he has been on, and we saw this journey when we looked at the story of Paul in Acts chapter nine when he met Jesus on the road." To Damascus when he was chasing his own ambition, when his will was the center of his order, when he was dead, 
due to loyalty to self. When he thinks about all of the things that happened from that moment, when he met Jesus, the life that came, and then following the life that came, the unity that he found with other believers. When I think about all of this, a small phrase, he's thinking about a lot. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of the Gentiles. This comment about being a prisoner of Christ Jesus is a statement on his present reality as well as a sign of his sacrifice for others. He breaks off his thought at that point, and it, he will pick it up in, in, in uh, verse 14. But this is a strong reminder of the authorship of the plan that he is willing to be in prison for. Because when he says, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, he literally is in prison as he writes this, this, this letter to the church in Ephesus. He breaks off the thought in order to expand on what could motivate him to put down the ambitions he had for his own life, to put down his own goals, to put down his own desires in order to demonstrate his loyalty to Jesus by loving others enough that he actually risked prison, torture, and death to see those people reconciled to God. As he writes this letter, to the church. He is a prisoner of Nero in Rome. He's accused by the Jewish leaders of various forms of social disruptions and treason, which he's actually kind of guilty of, but they're cool social disruptions. So, um, But what he's doing as he writes this letter is he is in prison awaiting the arrival of Jewish leaders from Jerusalem so his trial can begin. He's waiting for his accusers to show up so his trial can actually begin. And he writes this letter. Paul, a former Jewish leader himself, was brought from death to life through his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, captured in Acts chapter 9. And in this new life, Paul dedicated his energy to sharing the truth of this encounter with others. He shared the reality that this encounter was available to all people. Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. All people, we all share that common beginning in death, and this message was for all people. The threat to the loss of power and authority over the lives of the people that he preached to, that's really what he's guilty of, and that's what got the Jewish leaders so ticked off. They hate Paul as much as Paul once hated Christians. And this envenomed hatred led to his arrest, and the impending trial that he's waiting on. Paul's point of view is interesting, though. In spite of all of that, he says that he is a prisoner of Jesus. He's not a prisoner of Nero, which is certainly true. He's not a prisoner of Rome, also true. He's not even a prisoner of the Jewish leaders. What he's indicating with this opening statement of chapter 3 is that he understands that, that, that he is not just a resource used up by Jesus in a task. 
he understands that he is a standard bearer of the great cause of the ministry of reconciliation. He is a prisoner of Christ. And being in prison is not a a punishment and it's not a penance. Being in prison is a privilege as a standard bearer of the ministry of reconciliation. This point of view reflects the movement from selfishness to self-sacrifice. In the example of Christ, he has given himself for the sake of others. Loyalty to Jesus manifests in love for others. Loyalty to Jesus manifests in prison. Loyalty to Jesus demonstrating sacrifice of self. There's a lot in that first verse, but let's jump back into the passage uh, starting in verse uh, 2. Assuming, by the way, and this is now that, that parenthetical that'll take us through the rest of the passage we consider today, uh, he's breaking off his thought. He's saying, assuming, by the way, that you know God gave me the special responsibility by, expend, by extending his grace to you Gentiles. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed his mysterious plan to me. As you read what I have written, you will understand my insight into the plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations, but now by his spirit he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body, And both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading the good news. The mysterious plan of God. I love that. The mysterious plan of God. This one mysterious plan that continues to unfold is not something that Paul or anyone else can find on our own. Paul's making that point. You cannot discover the plan on your own. There's nothing about our individual efforts that will demonstrate the plan. The plan must be revealed, and the plan is revealed by a loving God. Also, this plan not just revealed, it's also demonstrated it's shown. Paul, again, is an example of this. And, and with the plan revealed to him, Paul becomes a transmitter of that plan to the world as he knows it. And it serves as an example for those that, that, that are in this service. This service is not, especially for Paul, but for us, this service is not a reluctant duty. This is a radiant privilege. One of the most difficult parts of church life is, is making that transition from hearing about ways to serve in the church, not as coerced duty, but as a privilege, as a part of the unfolding plan of God, not about what I am giving up, but what this service demonstrates for somebody else to know that they are a child of God. But back to the plan, the plan that Paul is transmitting 
the thing that's being transmitted, the mystery that was revealed to Paul and now revealed through Paul, what is that mystery? When he's talking about this thing that was revealed to him, when we talk about things that, that this must be a revelation for us, not something that we can find on our own, what Paul experienced that took him from death to life, what took him from life to unity with other believers, the mystery of God, the one thing that I don't understand about God is grace. What he's talking about is grace. Undeserved, unmerited grace. The mystery of God is his desire to reconcile with us. The Jesus-following life, from beginning to end, is totally dependent, totally dependent upon and wrapped in the mantle of the grace of God. God's grace compensates for our own weaknesses. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul writes, three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. He's talking about this, this, this thing that was, that was bugging him, that, that was like pulling him from, from the mission. He couldn't get rid of it himself. He couldn't actually pull this thorn from his flesh himself, and it was grating him. It was making it difficult to focus. Three different times, I begged the Lord to take it away. Each time he said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. God's grace meeting us in our weakness. Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 5, he writes, In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you've suffered a little while, he will restore support and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul wrote, When I first came to you, dear brothers and sisters, I didn't use lofty words and impressive wisdom to tell you about God's secret plan. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. I came to you in weakness, timid and trembling, and my message and my preaching were very plain. Rather than using clever and persuasive speeches, I relied only on the power of the Holy Spirit. I did this so you would trust not in human wisdom, but in the power of God. God's grace covering human weakness. One of the greatest weaknesses that, that we experience, falling into the trap of self-focus rather than self-sacrifice. This is really the condition of our culture. Our culture is about self-focus, whether it's self-defense, self-righteousness, self-edification. There, so uh, there are so many things that demonstrate to us this human weakness of falling into the trap of self-focus, rather than the example that we have from Jesus and Paul of self-sacrifice. The reality that they demonstrate to us this reality comes by way of those examples of Jesus crucified for us, Paul in prison, and about to be executed by the, just the, the same way as, as the rest of the apostles. 
this road that we are on, this journey, is not easy, and grace is the only way to endure the road, especially to endure the road with joy, finding the abundant life. Grace is all that will take us through this journey. A Spanish mystic, Unamuno, I had to break that up so I didn't say it too fast. Unamuno. I like that guy just for his name. And this one quote. Unamuno would give a benediction like this. He would finish a, a prayer time with folks, and then he would say, May God deny you peace and give you glory. I love that. It's a demonstration of what Paul is, is talking about, the example that we have in self-sacrifice. And so what I say to us today is, may God deny you peace and give you glory. Father Maltby, used to give, and then Father Maltby died in 2014. Uh, he used to give a teaching I think this could be one of my favorite teachings on Jesus, uh, a teaching of what Jesus promised his disciples. Father Maltby said that, that Jesus promised his disciples three things. He promised his disciples that they would be absurdly happy. He promised his disciples that they would be absurdly happy, completely fearless, and in constant trouble. With that in mind, grace becomes a force multiplier because it's grace that meets us when we're absurdly happy, completely fearless, and in constant trouble. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 4 wrote, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. Praise God for that. The psalmist wrote Psalm 25, Turn to me and have mercy, for I alone am in deep distress. And then Paul in 1 Corinthians writes, But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me. And not without results, for I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I, but God, who is working through me. By his grace. Sounds like a song we just sang. In Romans, Paul wrote, Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into the place of undeserved privilege where we now stand, and we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. Making the point again in the second letter to the church in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul writes, And God will generously provide all you need then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Paul also, Paul also will show us that as the mystery of God's plan is revealed to us, we're strengthened by it. When this, the, this plan unfolds in front of us, this grace, this mystery, strengthens us to the task this grace becomes the engine for our activity. It becomes fuel for our ministry. In Romans chapter 5, he wrote, For the sin 
of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. And again in 2 Corinthians, each time he said, My grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ can work through me. The grace of God revealed to us and then revealed through us makes everything possible. The difficulties of life, the realities of the opposition that comes against us, standing in the grace of God, we have all that we need to be absurdly happy, completely fearless, and in constant trouble. So back into our passage, Ephesians 3, verse 8. Though I'm not the least deserving, though I am the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to them in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, had kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety to all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan, which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. Because of Christ and our faith in him, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. So please don't lose heart. Because of my trials here, I suffer for you. So you should feel honored. Paul is self-aware. That verse 8 is, is one of the most profound verses, that, or profound words that I think Paul writes you think about the, the man that, that really that, that wrote the, the balance of the New Testament for us, the scripture that we have. This man that, that wrote it is, is also a man that says that he is the least deserving to actually tell us about his journey. He remembers that on the road to Damascus, where he was met by Jesus, he was following his own track. He remembers that. He remembers following his own ambition. He remembers that he was full of purpose while he was doing this. He was carrying out what he thought was right. In the prosecution of what he thought was right, he was a murdering, torturing religious terrorist. But he's met by the grace of God, on the road to perpetrate, he's on the road of his own will, and he's met by the grace of God. After that meeting, after that, that initiation into grace, he now carries the privilege of sharing the treasure of that mystery of grace to others. Loyalty, loyalty to Jesus manifests in love for others. He also makes this point for us. 
God's purpose is to use the church to demonstrate these spiritual riches. This is the plan. This is the historical age that we are in now. This is the activity of God in our midst. The purpose is to use the church to demonstrate God's spiritual riches. One of those riches is direct access to the love of the Father. We have and ought to be extending direct access to the love of the Father. Direct access is without barriers. Direct access is without rules of behavior. Direct access, it's interesting because the definition of direct access is direct access. So, if you've never heard it said, one of the riches is direct access to the love of the Father and the support of family that is in the same fight. The riches that we can extend to others is direct access to the love of the Father and the support of family because we are seeking that same direct access. And we do it together. These riches are what N.T. Wright calls a new way to be human. And it reminds us that Jesus perfected humanity. He is human perfection. And one piece of that perfection is unity, the unity that he shares with the triune God. The three persons of the Trinity are united in one Godhead. This unity is a rich, one of the riches that Paul is, is introducing to us here. They're in... This Godhead, they're interrelated with one another. They share the same attributes, and they cooperate to the same work. This is an example for the church. Interrelated with one another, sharing the same attributes, and cooperating in the same work. Unity is an attribute of God, and therefore it is an attribute of his people. It's an attribute of the church. This calls us to a mutual participation in the blessings of God's grace. We are united with one another on the basis of our common receipt of the benefits of salvation and the restoration of relationship with God. It's in this unity that the grace of God will be transmitted in the time between the Sundays. We are called together and we're called into fellowship. Peter 1 Peter chapter 2 says, You are living stones that God is building into a spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Through the mediation of Jesus Christ, you offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. We know that God will bless a people united in fellowship. We know this even back looking into the Old Testament in 2 Chronicles. Then if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. Jesus, in Matthew 18, 
says this. I, I also tell you this. If two of you agree here on earth concerning anything you ask, my Father in heaven will do it for you. For where two or three gather together as my followers, I am there among them. What we see here is a massive counter to the culture of our time. We see that greatness and wholeness do not lie uh, within ourselves. Greatness and wholeness doesn't come from within me. Greatness and wholeness are found in our task and in the message of Jesus Christ. William Barclay, in his commentary on this passage, recalls um, something about Tuscanini, one of the great orchestral conductors the world has ever known. Before playing one of the, the symphonies of Beethoven, Tuscanini said, Gentlemen, I am nothing. You are nothing. Beethoven is everything. He understood that his duty was not to draw attention to himself. He understood that the duty of the orchestra was to not to draw attention to themselves, but to let the music flow through them and fall on the ears of the audience. In the same way, we together allow the grace of God to flow through us to those that we're about to meet in the time between the Sundays. The mystery of God revealed to us, now revealed through us, the grace of the one that calls us his masterpiece. Now, one of the things that just makes this so much fun is that after we get to talk about building the church, we get to invite others to join us in this as, a, as an outward expression of an inner transformation. As we get ready to return to worship, uh, we are going to baptize. And so if you're, if you're being baptized today, if you, would, if you wouldn't mind, just come up, make your way up here. We'll get ready for you. Um, what I would uh, just say about this moment, this is something that, that's just... Uh, let me try to give you a picture of what, what I think is happening in, in, in the heavenly realms. As, as the Holy Spirit is with us, and you, you think about what we're about to do, what we're about to see, the, the heavens open up, and, and the angels that are about to celebrate with us as, as, as we see this happen. What we're going to see is an outward expression of an inner transformation. This, this symbol, this is one of the the sacraments that's given to the church by Jesus, the other being communion, what we have here is baptism. And this goes back to the mission that God gave the church. When we read in Matthew 28, this great commission that we know so well, Jesus came and told his disciples, I have given them all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so when we do this, we celebrate one of the sacraments that Jesus gave us. And this is a, a, a visible representation of the death as we go into the water of Christ. And following the death, we see joining the resurrection, coming out of the water, the new life that is Jesus. We also know that the water symbolizes the washing of all of the things that separated us from God, all of the death to self, self stays in the water. And the only thing that comes out is unity because of the grace of the Father. And so 
as we start worship together, we are going to baptize. And you do have a role in this. This is your role. Man, when they break that water, when they come back from death to life, this is when the party starts. Come out of that water, man, let's make sure they understand what, it's, what it sounds like in heaven with those trumpets blasting. Yeah. Thank you. All right.